0: Leisure cruise sounds way better than bleisure cruise. Leisure, leisure, bleasure, pleasure.
1: You say leisure, bleasure, I say, oh, yeah, okay.
0: We should just do a bit with just accents, right? We'll just call it across the pond and compare the American pronunciations versus the British.
1: That could be a whole podcast of itself.
0: Things like Doug and Dog, Doug. right? You know, all those things. Yeah.
1: Aluminium. Uncaged H- Wisdom Deep Dips, the podcast where we take a quick but deep dip into the world of relationship marketing.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another Uncaged Wisdom Deep Dips, where today we are joined by a very special guest, Roger Williams. Hello, Roger.
0: Hello, Julian.
2: Could you introduce yourself to our audience and basically tease out
0: that voice of yours? Sure, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh i'm roger williams i'm an enterprise strategy director here at cheetah digital i recently joined cheetah about a year ago coming from saber most of my background is in airlines and in loyalty programs um, starting my career um, at an airline as a loyalty manager um, and also working quite a few other roles including um, being a, a ground agent, a check-in agent, um, just about everything else before I joined management and then had the pleasure and honor of um, being involved in, in marketing and loyalty marketing and alliances for that airline. Um, and then subsequent to that started my own company called Airline Information, where we served a variety of airline managers, approximately two to 250 airlines worldwide. Um, mainly in the loyalty space um, and other commercial areas uh, with conferences and a knowledge base and also consulting. Between that and Sabre, uh, had a few startups, uh, including a loyalty startup that involved Bitcoin, of all things.
2: Today, we're talking destination marketing, which I'm not going to lie is a, is a term that you gave me, Roger, and I probably should have known it already. It Whose advice is advice? To start, though, sympathy for the devil's advocate, where we chuck a statement at you, and really, we just get your sort of gut reactions on it. I'm scared. I would like my favourite travel brand to stop pushing random destinations and discounts on me. Why can't they just offer me somewhere where I want to go?
0: It's been an issue since the beginning of travel marketing, whether it's with airlines, hotels or actual destination marketers. Uh, so we mentioned destination marketing before. I mean, traditionally in the travel space, we think of destination marketing more as a, as a tourist boards. Um, but of course, you know, airlines and hotels do it as well because they are facilitating the um, transportation or, or the accommodation at a destination. So it's very much a, a, a partnership effort. And they're um, traditionally, A lot of destination marketing particularly from airlines and hotels travel agents has been driven by yield and inventory management essentially right so not necessarily where travel companies are concerned about what destination may resonate with you or what would you actually like to experience looking into the level of sophistication of your persona because as you may know personas change you know, going back to that really creepy movie, right? Where you could be literally two people, uh, Julian. Where um, when you you travel for business versus when you travel with your family, completely different needs, right? And basically two different personalities, two two personas. So there there are all those psychographic requirements that travel companies need to work through in order to uh, address that concern. Where why can't They offer me somewhere I want to go because we've all seen those emails where you have that list of destination comes in your inbox. You look at it and it takes you about maybe five seconds to delete it because you quickly peruse. I mean, there might be some weather bugs on there. It might be some beaches or what what have you. But if you really look into it, they are sending that to you based on the fact that they need to put butts in seats or heads in beds. Not necessarily because it's somewhere where they know that you would like to go.
2: When you're talking about yield and inventory management, so who's sort of driving almost the, is it the like the cart before the horse in this case? Is it is it people who are looking at the yield of the inventory who are pushing the marketing and where marketing's going? So the marketers aren't really getting a chance to be creative and who, yeah, who's driving that, that decision for, uh, traditionally?
0: It is a financial or a revenue decision Uh, Of course, there's a very sophisticated network of technology in the travel industry that will be able to determine seasonality um, and, you know, days of the week and essentially demand elasticity and align the availability of the inventory, whether that's an airplane seat or a room, um, align that with, with a demand. And um, so much effort and technology and money and investment goes into that, that it essentially takes over the process and it guides marketing where it's going to then tell marketing, we need you to put your marketing efforts into these areas because this is where we need to drive more traffic. Uh, It's as simple as that. Uh, And and that's ubiquitous around the world.
2: Are you seeing that people realize this is perhaps not the most efficient way to satisfy the inventory needs or the the revenue that is being targeted on the the marketers and teams of travel companies
0: yeah and you said a key word efficiency it, it really is an inefficient process right it, it's it's akin to so we're, we're all email marketers here for email marketing company uh, and and it's kind of akin to where you look at um marketers moving from a, a batch and blast type approach to more of a triggered or personalized approach in email it's it's very similar to that where um there's a lot of inefficiency if you're going to be marketing based on your revenue and yield requirements because essentially you're going to have to send out a lot more volume you're going to have to touch the customer a lot more and in the process you are eroding that relationship you're creating disengagement unsubscribes um the entire gamut of that and you're, you're, you're doing a lot of damage. So in order to compensate for that, you have to crank up your volume way above what you may need. That's going to hit your bottom line in terms of cost. So you're going to be sending out more emails, you know, processing, you know, larger databases, customer lists, that sort of thing. When in fact, if you had a different approach that would be more aligned to what the customer really wanted your conversion rate will be higher. It'll be a lot more efficient. So I think you call it very well there, Julian.
2: Well, I try. It's all that research I do with you before that no one knows about. People think this is all spontaneous. This is a bit random, but while we're in devil's advocate
1: mode, a term I've seen popping up more is leisure, business leisure. I know Roger, you were saying about the two personalities, but um, I guess with COVID and just people trying to take advantage of that, of that travel when they are traveling for business and that's just an interesting thing that i've seen that pop up more like has that term been used for a while or is that still quite new
0: that's a really brilliant point diva um it's not a new thing so when i was a, a young marketing manager in the 90s early 2000s i actually used to task our reservations department to use their downtime in order to cross-sell uh when people were on trips but in particular to look at business travelers that were traveling at the time uh closer to a weekend and then we literally go down the list and and start call, ringing them up and say hey you're in my you're well let's say you're you're in atlanta or something and and do you want to take a side trip to bermuda right um and the more information we had on that person the better So we we could then say, yeah, you're really into cave diving, and there's really great cave diving in the Bahamas. You're just 500 miles away from there on a business trip right now. Can we interest you in that? So it's been around as long as, you know, longer than I've been around, but it has really taken um, traction uh, after COVID because, uh, of course, folks working from home and then the work from anywhere trend where people have literally picked up their entire families um, and hit the road um and you know just gone everywhere renting Airbnbs and what have you, um and they're taking calls during the day and you know mingling that with hey let's go on a hike let's go here let's explore and it's it's all kind of mashed up together so um it it's COVID has been the catalyst for that but and, and I think has coined that term pleasure, uh but it's certainly been around for a long time and. St- and travel marketers that have been trying to be clever and, and, and really try to get down to that personalization have been doing it for a long time. Just not a lot.
2: The pleasuring. Yeah, a bit of pleasuring. We're going to split the the, the the main part of this into sort of two sections of, of of destination marketers, things to consider, of doing things a little bit differently. To kick us off, let's look at zero-party data. It's one of our favorite subjects. It's something that we talk about a lot. You said something very, very interesting to me. Destination marketing and zero-party data are match made in heaven.
0: They truly are a match made in heaven, guys. Um, we And the reason for that is kind of what I was alluding to before, where... Coming from what the harm is, right? The the, the problem was that it's all being driven, destination marketing that is being driven by revenue concerns and putting butts and seats and heads and beds. So the alternative of that and the solution is more about finding out what is it that people want to do. Or and in some cases, people may not even know exactly where they want to go. But if you're able to harness information about them that would allow you to piece it together and then create a recommendation on, Hey, this might be a really good location for you because you have these attributes, then that'll be good. In order to do that, you simply have to ask, right? So, which is why these things coincide so well, zero party data and destination marketing. So we could either, and it's generally better if, if it's a little bit more drawn out and the way I described the second way where we are asking really smart questions um, that are capturing a variety of attributes that using our experience, we can put those attributes together and create a destination recommendation for you, which we actually have done recently with our client, American Airlines, where we used Cheetah Experiences and we created a recommendation engine one that works so well that american is now integrating that into their future recommendation engines which are mostly revenue management base and and they were really impressed by this um because of a couple things one it was super simple it was two two questions right um and a lot of people actually got these i, I was at a conference the other day and some i ran into someone that introduced themselves and they're like oh are you with cheetah and they're like um do, did you know about this, you know, I'm, I'm with an advantage. And I got this email that had these two questions and I thought it was really interesting. And then you guys gave me a destination recommendation. So the, the questions were essentially, what would you pack in your bag? And the other one was, what kind of view do you wanna wake up to in the morning? And it's based on those two questions and, and, and they were very graphic, right? So the responses were, you know, you could click on a mountain view, beach, um, you know, so on and so forth, right? And then what you pack in your bag, you know, there were items that would align with leisure and items that would align with more business. Uh, so based on those combinations, and there were quite a, quite a few of those combinations, we created an algorithm uh, and superimposed that with the airline's destinations. And we were able to use uh, Cheetah's EDP to automatically create a recommendation that would feed back to the user instantly on hey we think you should go here and then we could continue to iterate that algorithm um, as many times as the airline wanted and feed that into emails that would then trigger and go to users Uh, and in this particular case that that ran for several months where with just one quiz where you answer two questions didn't take a lot of time we then were able to create a myriad of destination recommendations based on the places that the airline could possibly go.
2: what was the the value exchange up front or the incentive to put it another way for for the user?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question and And we actually a b tested it in in this particular campaign, and in many cases, we have uh, some clients where the value exchange is the result. it is a recommendation. It is the promise from the brand saying that, hey, we're using Cheetah's tools and we are taking the time to get to know more about you so we can market to you more efficiently and in a more personalized way. In many cases, that actually works and we're not giving the user any points or any money or anything at all. In most cases, that works really well. In the case of this example, we actually used Advantage Miles, which are recognized and beloved and it was to the advantage member audience. Uh, And it, it worked even better in many cases. So we we actually gave some miles uh, for folks to complete uh, the quiz, but we could tell that even without giving those points, people were just like, whoa, this is different. And even the airline said, "We, we really haven't done this before. I wonder how the customers are going to react, and they reacted really, really well. So it was kind of like a, a value add, value exchange to give those points.
2: What are some of the barriers to to this being rolled out with other with other either clients in in the travel sector or just broadly? Because it's one of those things that for for us, and I know we live and eat it and breathe it every day. It just seems a sort of no brainer. Everyone should be doing this. Part of my standard day to day or month to month planning.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's twofold. One, there there could be a little bit of apprehension with the value exchange itself where there's apprehension in the part of the brand that, well, if I don't give a value exchange, are people going to engage with this? Is it going to be worthwhile? Or maybe the value exchange that I have to offer may not be as powerful a- as I think. And I mentioned that I had a startup a long time ago that um, in 2012 was... I was giving away Bitcoin. I was giving away 50,000 Satoshis just for clicking on a link. And not a single person did it. And I I literally made a social media post just ranting. I think it was like 2013. Like, what is wrong with you people? All my friends, everyone. You don't want any Bitcoin. And the responses were, what's Bitcoin? Right? So fast forward today, the perception of Bitcoin is completely different. Right? Uh, So... It's it's a matter of timing and perception. Where at the time when I was literally giving away Bitcoin and no one took me up on it, is because no one knew what it was, and and or the people that did know what it was maybe didn't necessarily see the value in it. So so that's that's the the first part of it, I think. Um, and and then the second part is really about activation, and and that's probably the bigger part of the pie here, where we even have brands that will do this type of activity. And and you can you can enable this in many ways, not just necessarily with with us. Um, it's just that you know our ecosystem is really well integrated for you to, to to do it in a very efficient way. But yeah, I've seen a lot of brands, um, usually the same ones that say that, hey, I, we're all about personalization, but they're really not, and they're not using that data, that zero-party data, that psychographic data. They're not able to activate it or activate it at scale. And by that, meaning that, like I, I described to you, we how we activate it was we put it into an algorithm and we actually created a recommendation in two different formats, an instant recommendation and then recommendations that would come subsequent to that. Um, and then installed, go, go went towards an evergreen component where we would continue to do that once the customer has been exposed to it, they're then gonna start to expect it. So you, you want this pilot stage, and then you want that pilot stage to transition into an evergreen component where you're gonna continually use that zero-party data and make it part of your marketing. Now, as a loyalty guy, I'll be remiss to not mention that loyalty programs really are the original zero-party data at scale, right? Because, and, and value exchange all in one. Uh, so a loyalty marketer worth their salt knew that this a few years after Advantage was launched in the eighties, I mean, initially it was a competitive tool, um, created by Briarly and and Bob Crandall at the time. Um a few years after when the data guys came in, they're like, whoa, this is a lot of really, really good data. And loyalty programs have been the same since, where they're, they're giving you points and a variety of benefits and recognition in exchange for you sharing as much as possible. And now with the younger generations, sorry, with the millennials, it, it's even more so. Um, all, those, all the stats lean towards, hey, I will share as much with you as you want, uh, as long as I'm going to get some clear value from that. That might include points, it might be cashback, or, or whatever you have you. Um, so, so that's been the original thing. The one thing is that, and my take on it, uh, I had to do with my startup years ago, um, is that loyalty is, the, the way it rewards is backwards, right? We, we give the points after the transaction. And of course, that, that makes things like attribution a little complicated. It you know, makes for awkward conversations with CFO, which I've had quite a few in boardrooms like saying, hey, w- did this actually motivate? The transaction, or would they have purchased this anyway? So, in in, in a zero-party data acquisition scenario, where you're going to use loyalty as a value exchange, you're actually doing something else that's a paradigm shift in mark in loyalty marketing, where you are now front-loading loyalty point incentives, actual loyalty currency, um, before the transaction, and you're rewarding as much as you want leading up to the transaction. So. No strings attached. I'll give you 500 points just for clicking on the survey, and then you know you'll get 500 points for completing the survey. And then once the survey gives you the recommendation, like we talked about, I'm going to give you another 500 points just for clicking through on that recommendation. And then you go and you search, uh, you you take the destin, you book the destination that we recommended, and then you'll go ahead and earn your normal points. So, we're not just giving points in the back end, but we're, we're, we're spreading out those points however you want to do it. If you don't want to give additional points, maybe you can reduce the points in the back end and invest that on the front end. However, you want to do it, it still works, but we're spreading that out and basically controlling the funnel using loyalty, loyalty marketing and making it more personalized by acquiring and activating zero party data.
2: Loyalty programs, especially in this sector, They're well-established. They're complicated at times. In many ways, they are the marketing funnel. So how, if you're approaching some of the conversations and you're saying to them, you know, with all due respect, um, your loyalty currently is a little bit backwards because you're not actually driving the changes that you want. How do you approach it when it comes to sort of refreshing some thoughts into something that's right now is is quite hard-baked?
0: Very carefully. (laughs) Because these these are long-standing marketing practices, just like lack of personalization, right? Where uh, you, you literally have to remove the blinders from the marketer. And in many cases, articulating that doesn't always work in terms of convincing the marketer or the decision makers at B that be that in fact, you're you're not doing this as optimally as you can, and there are tools available to, and techniques available to do it a little bit differently. and That's going to gain exponentially higher results. So, what we tend to do from our experience on a strategy team when we're in a situation is is to push for a pilot, and I I share that with with the team all the time. It's like, hey, let's put a date on there, let's get to a pilot, and by creating the pilot program, it it, it takes some of the pressure off where it's like, hey, you know, it's not permanent. It's just, let's just try something and see if it works. Before we try it, we're going to lay it out. We're going to plan. We're going to create a hypothesis. We're we're going to say what we're solving for. We're very deliberate in our approach as consultants um, to reassure the customer. And then that even helps us more to make our case once the pilot's complete and and we we start crunching those numbers and looking at the analysis um to to show that hey this actually made a difference and then that's when that eureka moment that epiphany happens and you literally see it in the eyes of the marketer um and it's not something that you can communicate and express beforehand they they have to experience that
2: so just to put everything in a nice little package a travel package you could say roger thanks to you we've uncovered a well-known issue in the destination marketing category we got to move away from being driven by revenue and yield and as you said butts on seats heads on pillows heads Heads and beds beds. heads on beds butts and seats heads and beds so we've got that we've established that and then to start to address it, because we're not trying to silver bullet this, we're just trying to get people to think about their their marketing in a slightly different way in in, in this sector. Roger, you made the great, great pairing of destination marketing and zero-party data, and which really at the core of it is, ask the people that you're trying to, to do more with what it is that benefits them, and then you can work it out how you can provide it. Because the chances are, if you're offering that, more likely people will be interested in doing it associated to that at the heart of everything loyalty programs were the original deposit of zero party data it's why during the pandemic especially all these huge valuations on loyalty programs maintained their level because travel brands could show we know a lot of good things about our customer base and then Looking a little bit at the loyalty programs, which are the original zero party database, we interrogated the current tactics a little bit to see if actually we're doing it as well as we could. And again, another great point you made, especially around the value exchanges, consider how your loyalty set up. Is it actually a little bit backwards? Um, Are you really distributing your points and your rewards in the most efficient manner to drive the behaviors that you're after? And if everyone just listens to you, Roger, they will sort everything out and they'll be number one in the pleasure segment. I know that
1: outside of your life at Cheetah, you are a photographer and video content creator. I was having a little peek at your website. Sneaky. I was captured by the aerial cinematography that really caught my attention with the drone in the thunderstorm. This brought to mind for me that old industry saying, don't work with animals or small children, right? No mention of Mother Nature there or extreme weather conditions. Do you have any kind of content creation mantras, and also any interesting situations that come to mind that you've gotten into?
0: I tell you, I've gotten in a few interesting situations with the drone. I, I mean, I've I've been a photographer and a little bit. I mean, since the film days, and um, a bit, I don't like to say cinematographer as it sounds really. I mean, I've done some TV stuff, but commercials so i'm a videographer i say but um but I, during covid i decided to get my faa pilot's license so because y- you can't charge for drone footage unless you have that license so i had some extra time I had, and i got it and um yeah so the first couple times my drone got caught in a storm <laughs> and um another my first paid drone job was a 52 million dollar mansion in aspen and um I ended up crashing the drone and it knocked, it fell out, it fell, it hit a tree and it knocked over a whole five gallon bucket of paint that these bespoke painters were using to paint a Tesla garage, a five car Tesla garage. Um, And, and the house manager comes out and um, I call him Higgins. Uh, And he says, do you, do you always land your drone on a bucket of paint and i was like well something's interfering with the drone i mean it was going haywire and he said i I couldn't get it calibrated there's some you know what's what's the deal and he says well maybe it's because our roof is made out of copper so basically i was flying around a 52 million dollar tesla coil um but yeah i mean so the drone has definitely has some interesting stories and that's just really recently and i guess my you know foray as a image maker but but my longtime mantra to answer your question is really about expression and gesture um, uh, I used to I used to photograph weddings as well which I don't anymore <laughs> um, and weddings are really fun out here but in p- particular being a wedding photographer for some time as well to, to the gesture is really important where um, instead of just a, a mother and daughter kind of standing there at a the window and she's getting her you know ready with her dress and all that um, I try not to interfere, and then I'd say, hey, mom, why don't you just put your hand on her shoulder? And that makes all the difference, right? Or it's a certain expression. So if you look at a lot of my work, I, I try to get a certain expression and, and and some type of gesture, especially if there's more than one person in in the frame. Um, and that, that tends to work really, really well, and it's something I fall back to all the time
1: advice and so how did uh, the relationship end up with the 52 million mansion and the paint like are you going to be doing more work there or <laughs> well
2: he's got a drone with really nice paint on it that's what i can say
0: <laughs> so the, the drone was okay uh it broke a propeller the paint it was actually stain it was a special stain and it it spilled through the whole driveway i mean it was bad so higgins said to the painters he just turned to them after he asked me if i regularly crash a drone and stuff and he's like well you have solvent to clean us up don't you and they're like yeah okay and he's like what well, problem fixed and that was it i was like it
2: "Was one well ends well but roger we can't let you go about saying a little bit of your england slash manchester stories um and we've already hit on the accent so yeah take us back take us back to the homeland
0: yeah those are the good old days in manchester um uh, which, by the way i i am a subject of the queen because i was born in jamaica in the commonwealth um uh, and you know i just pretty much grew up in the us you know hence hence the lack of a jamaican accent but so indeed um manchester i i i went to graduate school in the university of salford which is a tiny town adjacent to manchester um lots of dodgy pubs and that include a lot of fights where basically all their pint glasses are broken and pool cues and that sort of thing. Um, and this was in the '90s, and uh, it was kind of the, the heyday of the music scene um, in Manchester. And I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting some really, really notable musicians, and you know, had a pint with them. Um, you know, guys like Peter Hook from New Order, and um, and and it was great and you know in the north of the gap it reminds me of back home in in jamaica where we're, we're really not impressed by celebrities we just treat them like ordinary people and that's how it was in salford manchester as well um you know beckhams would be walking by and you know, all that sort of thing right it, it's it's just another day um really fun and one of my favorite parts of the UK.
2: You were mentioning it's more, you hit the peak of Oasis.
0: Yeah, mid nineties, it was, um, and, and those guys would walk into a bar every now and then, and they they weren't necessarily graciously accepted because they really thought they were, they were, you know.
2: The dog's bollocks.
0: The dog's bollocks, well, that's it, yeah. <laughs> so everyone would be like, oh God, it's the Gallagher brothers, right? But yeah, I mean, it was exciting times in, in, in Manchester um, and it was just a magical moment. It was a really exciting city for, for music. And a lot of great music came out of there that influenced not just the alternative scene uh, in the UK, but all over the world, right? Um, it, was, it was really, really cool.
1: Uncaged Wisdom is shot in front of a live audience, mainly producer Jennifer Yaden, hosted by Julian Bracey Davis and diva Renton Roderick's. Subscribe for even more deep dips. Hashtag just the tip of the iceberg. 2022, y'all.